Ross Greenwood, and these are the Money Minutes. Today, Australia in recession for the first time since 1991, but some, oddly, have got richer off the government handouts. Fair or not? Great to have your company, and look, you can mark down September 2, 2020 as the day Australia's unbeaten run without an official recession came to an end. Here's the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg. Our record run of 28 consecutive years of economic growth has now officially come to an end. The cause? A once-in-a-century pandemic. The effect? A COVID-19-induced recession. You see there? He finally, finally used the R word that he so assiduously avoided in the past. That word, recession, seems almost to be like an F word or a C word for governing politicians. He finally had to use it today. Now, surely I'll be speaking with Warren Hogan, one of Australia's most senior economists, about the differences between this recession and the last one that ended in late 1991. And while you might think with the stock market booming and house prices not tanking as much as many people thought, that it must be different. Well, let me tell you this. It's still following exactly the same patterns of the last downturn. Some things are different, like interest rates are zero. I get that. And people are chasing yield. I kind of get that. But people really, if you like, remember with the government handouts and the lower interest rates chased property prices that created a boom, that caused inflation, that caused interest rates to rise, that triggered the recession. And in this particular downturn, we're barely six months into it. We've got a long way to run. Let's go again to Josh Frydenberg. Real GDP fell in the June quarter by 7%, the largest quarterly fall on record. Since the series began in 1959, this is its largest ever fall. The previous largest fall was 2% in 1974. But look, times are tough. You cannot trivialise this. And most likely they're going to get tougher, much tougher into the future. That almost seems inevitable as the government right now is the biggest single financial influence or difference, if you like, as to whether many companies and individuals survive financially or whether they collapse. But one thing, though, there are serious differences in Australia 2020 compared with Australia 1991. One thing, for starters, is the whole digital economy and the efficiencies that that's brought. There's also the massive increase we've seen to Australia's population, fuelled by a rush of migrants to our capital cities. And just as a little reminder of the different times, have a listen to this. Don't tell me it's not worth trying Now that's the Canadian Brian Adams and his bittersweet ballad that was a top-selling song in Australia in 1991. Now, 
Tones and I, winner of multiple ARIA awards and a top-selling artist in Australia in the past year. Now, I should point out also, I was thinking of playing Cardi B's chart-topping song called WAP, featuring Megan Three Stallion. Not a bad name, Megan Three Stallion. But look, how do I put this? Well, if I'd played it, let's say, in 1991, the censors would have been all over me. Not today. Frankly, though, I didn't actually dare playing a single line from the number one single in Australia today to you. That's just how times have changed. But what hasn't changed is that recessions hurt families and people. The Treasurer picked up on this just a little bit today. Behind these stories and these numbers are heartbreaking stories of hardship being felt by everyday Australians as they go about their daily lives. Be it the tourism operator in Cairns, the tradie in Melbourne, the cafe worker in Adelaide, or the domestic flight attendant in Sydney. They have all been hard, hard hit by COVID-19. I now want to bring into this conversation about the recession somebody who's got a few grey hairs. In fact, it could be said that Warren Hogan, who is right now the industry professor at the UTS Business School, but who previously for 10 years was the chief economist at ANZ Bank, and among other things, he's been with the uh, National Treasury, but he was also an economist with the New South Wales Treasury Corporation from 1995 until 1997. Interestingly enough, that period, as you know, is just as the last recession was ending. So he's almost as old as a person can be working without having ever seen actually a recession until right now. Warren, many thanks for your time. No, no problem, Ross. Great to be here with you. All right. I want to take you through the circumstances of today's recession and then compare them with what took place in the past. Are there lessons that we can learn from the past and the way in which government central banks acted that might make things better or worse in this current recession we're now experiencing? Well, I think we uh, have seen that in play already and it was very much brought out in the, in the national accounts, the GDP report we saw. Um, and that is the, the need to act very quickly with government policy. So in the early 1990s, the government uh, reacted very slowly with its fiscal policy. And we saw that recession go very, very deep and very, very quickly before we saw a significant sort of government fiscal response. There was a lot of interest rate cuts back then, and that was obviously of some help. Um, but it was the government fiscal response, which was very slow in the early 90s, which, of course, in this case, we saw an immediate response. Literally within weeks, we saw the government extend welfare programs and, of course, add in that wage subsidy with the JobKeeper program. So that's the big lesson that they took from the early 90s, and it really came into play um, in this downturn. Okay, so out of the numbers we've seen today, we've seen actually, in many cases, an increase in household incomes. We've seen a significant increase in the household savings ratio. Uh, and, you know, the household savings ratio is at almost an unheard of 24.8%. You don't expect people to get rich out of a recession. But to a certain extent, because of the amount of money that the government has thrown out into the economy, that's kind of what's happened so far. Yeah, well, we, we've definitely seen some people benefit from the government payments who probably sort of looked after themselves. You know, they had their own buffers, but they got on to JobKeeper and they were getting $1,500. But really, 
um, the, the boost to household income was that government policy response. If we hadn't have seen JobKeeper in particular, then we would have seen a huge decline in household income, probably something between 5 and 10%. I haven't actually done the exact calculations. So it was really that was the, the, the government policy in action. Uh, the savings rate, I think, is mainly due to the fact that there's a lot of people who kept their jobs and kept their income, but they couldn't spend. They couldn't go overseas on holiday. They couldn't go to a restaurant, and they certainly couldn't go to the cinema or what have you. So I think a lot of that increase in savings uh, was really just a, a ref- reflection of the restrictions placed on society and the fact that a lot of people couldn't spend money. Um, you know, they're madly trying to buy board games and you know household furniture and all these sorts of things, but it didn't make up for the <laughs> for the drop in spending on all these um, services which we couldn't we couldn't uh, participate in because of the restrictions. Okay, so the the big question right now, though, to my mind is what happens down the track. Because what we knew is when eventually they had to try and tighten their fiscal stance, when the Reserve Bank had to raise interest rates, that's really what triggered the recession, which was, if you remember, four years after the actual stock market shock uh, that triggered the recession later on. What worries me in some ways is what happens in three or four years' time when really the government either tires or really has to try and reverse the position... Uh, and as a result, then somehow businesses and individuals are going to be more adversely affected down the track than what they might have been in the immediate aftermath of the economic downturn. Yeah, well, I think, I think there's some real um, something you, you're on to a very good point there. I don't think we're going to have to wait three or four years. The, the, the shock this time was obviously the pandemic, the restrictions placed on the society that stopped the economy, but it has revealed... Uh, and unleashed a recession dynamic on the economy. And that is best sort of indicated by the amount of unemployment and the amount of businesses that fail. And I think what you're getting at is that right now we're in a bit of a, a bit of a false economy for a lack of a better description in the sense that all this stimulus the government's put into the economy is propping it up. But once those emergency policy supports wind down and I'm, I think JobKeeper is the big one, which is going to start in just a few weeks. We're going to have a big sort of tightening of eligibility. A lot of people are going to fall off it. Job seeker is going to start to normalise at the end of the year. And then for me, the big one is the bait monitorium, which will finish in January of next year. So we're going to see more job losses, I'd say, as JobKeeper comes off because there's been a lot of people who are remaining employed, although their businesses probably won't keep them once they've got to try and pay their full wages. And then, of course, the banks, they're going to have to face up to all those mortgage holders, and I think a lot of them are investors, um, and all those small, medium enterprises which aren't paying their interest right now and whether they will be able to next year. So I I don't think we're going to need to wait for three or four years, Ross. I think we're going to find out the real situation with this economy and what the challenge is by the middle of next year. And unfortunately, I don't think it's going to be all that pretty. I think this idea of building a bridge, as I think some of the policymakers, whether it's the Treasurer or the RBA, talked about back in March, but building a bridge to the other side, well, I don't think the other side's at the same level as where we started. And I think we have got some significant challenges to face up to next year. I think 2021 is going to be one of the most important years for the Australian economy, uh, well, 30 years. 
And it's also true to say that the longer a vaccine takes to come generally throughout our community, the longer it's going to take to get back to the new normal. And as a result, the the more uh, businesses will be fragile. And you think about the retailers, many of whom are only being, you know, sort of surviving at the moment because there's this moratorium you spoke about, about directors being allowed to have those companies trade while insolvent. I mean, that is a significant thing because... That's also, along with JobKeeper, kept people artificially potentially in jobs and kept the businesses artificially alive when otherwise, in a normal situation, they would have, bro- would have closed down. So, as I say, I, this is where I get worried about what happens beyond the horizon, beyond the here and now. Yeah, no, no, I totally agree. And, and, and the reality is, is that we have got to, we've got to sort of cut the economy loose. I mean, there'll be a lot of people from the left side of politics in particular, who are going to sort of argue that the government's there to, you know, should do this indefinitely. We've all heard, you know, modern monetary theory saying that, you know, they can spend as much money as they want. And, you know, that, that's all sort of fairyland stuff. You know, this economy is based on a robust, healthy private sector. We had to support it through the initial shock because of the, 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 the significance and severity of the to economic activity that was taken, but at some stage we have to go and you know release the private sector again, and, and we're going to have to sort through a bit of the mess that's left behind. And you know, I think that's why it's going to be it's going to be a tricky year, and even a tricky couple of years, as you know, inevitably businesses will fail. I think one OECD report said that one in six businesses in the Western world will fail uh, in the next few years, which I, I think is way too high, but you know, it remains to be seen. But you have to go through that process to sort of refresh the place and get yourself ready to you know, get up on your feet and going again. And I actually think this could lay the platform for an amazing amount of economic growth and, and job creation and wealth creation over the decade ahead. But what we do know is if the government's constantly just trying to, you know, cover it up, then we won't get back to where we were. We won't get that sort of robust, innovative, productive private sector reignited again. That's the big challenge now over the next few years, which I think people are underestimating. And as the last recession did teach us, sometimes to go forward and to expand, as Australia did for uh, 29 years, you do need sometimes to go backwards for a period of time to get the reform that is necessary. The industry professor at the UTS Business School, one of the uh, most highly regarded economists in Australia, Warren Hogan. Uh, Warren, great to have you on the program today. Thanks, Ross. It was a pleasure and uh, I wish everyone well. Now, you heard in that conversation about the Australian savings rate going to 24%, the highest I've ever seen. Now, that does include superannuation. But even without superannuation, it's still an extraordinary high 18% or so now. And the reason why you have JobKeeper and JobSeeker is to make certain families don't go broke, those especially who are going to be vulnerable to losing their jobs. But you don't necessarily expect people to get more wealthy as a result of the coronavirus and as a result of the downturn. And you don't expect them to be getting more wealthy in comparison with other taxpayers who are clearly going to have to pay it or the debts that the government has to take on. Then there's a whole other group of individuals. These are much wealthier Australians whose companies in many cases have taken advantage of the JobKeeper, but then they have continued to pay themselves even higher bonuses. So the assistant shadow treasurer, who's Andrew Lee, smart bloke, I know him 
he really is able to articulate a campaign, jumped up in Parliament yesterday and decided to name a few of these companies. Have a listen. But a scheme designed to reduce inequality is being misused by a small number of firms who are channelling it to executive bonuses. Accent Group received $13 million in JobKeeper and gave CEO Daniel Agostinelli a $1.2 million bonus. IDP Education received $4 million in JobKeeper and gave CEO Andrew Barkler a $600,000 bonus. Last year, he was Australia's highest-paid CEO, taking home $37 million. Star Casino received $64 million in JobKeeper and gave CEO Matt Barkier an equity bonus worth $800,000. Sealink received $8 million in JobKeeper and gave CEO Clinton Feuerheit a $500,000 bonus. And then there's Dividend Keeper, diverting money for workers into shareholder payouts. Furniture firm Nick Scarley received $4 million from Australian and New Zealand taxpayers. Its increased dividend will deliver $2 million to the Scarley family. 1300 Smiles got $2 million in JobKeeper and paid out $3 million to shareholders. Managing Director Darrell Holmes owns two-thirds of the company, so we'll get about $2 million, roughly what his company received in JobKeeper support. As Ownership Matters Dean Parch puts it, I don't think it was ever the intention of the government to subsidise executive salaries. If you're getting taxpayer subsidies, the CEO should not be getting a bonus. So that's Andrew Lee in Parliament. Well, today, the Finance Minister, the outgoing Finance Minister, Matthias Cormann, was asked about this. He wasn't exactly forthcoming, but I think you get the message here that the government also recognises that people can't, well, they can't take the mickey out of their system. In the end, that is a question for those companies. Do you I mean, think it's uh, right? For, do you, do you, well, do you for, think for, it's right for these companies I, to be doing I'm, that? I'm just not going to provide a sort of a commentary on this. I mean, in, in the end, we provided a, a, a program which was deliberately uh, simple uh, and which was rolled out very quickly at large scale. But individual businesses have to justify their actions to their shareholders and to the community. The whole issue of fairness in Australia is still pretty, well, let's say fair dinkum. Something is either fair dinkum or it's not. And you know whether that passes the smell test or not. For me, it doesn't. They should do something about it, those companies and those individuals. I'm not quite sure what. How do you hand back the government a couple of million bucks? But technically, I reckon you should. Anyway, that's it for today's episode. Many thanks for your company and your feedback is always welcome. I'm Ross Greenwood and these are the Money Minutes. Yeah.